Hello, Geek Sweaters. We are back with another podcast for filmmakers and film enthusiasts. I am King Dom, and I am joined by our ever-present comptroller, Neo Geo. And I'm also joined today by my co-presenter, TJ. Howdy. We are available on CastBots, Stitcher, and 19 other podcast platforms. This is episode number 67 and it is another inspirational interview and today we are lucky enough to be meeting the editor ben whitehead Woo! hello <laughs> get a round of applause that's amazing that's am- you're amazing ben you're an editor you, you to give you another round of applause you're like the geniuses <laughs> right, of film and cinema you haven't seen the stuff i've edited <laughs> it could be all terrible Thanks for coming down. It's really great to see you again because um, London's your home now and you're originally from, is it Leeds? Yeah, I sort of go down the scale of like, I start with West Yorkshire. Yeah. And you find that more people have heard of West Yorkshire. So, okay, okay well, then I'll try Lee. Okay, I've heard of Leeds. Okay, Bradford. Okay, I've heard of Bradford. And yeah. then you sort of get down to Cleckheaton, which is my actual town. Oh. And if someone's heard of Cleckheaton, then I'm, yeah. you know, very suspicious. I made it down <laughs> to Bradford. <Wow>. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's where the National Cinema Museum is. Yeah. What's it called? I think it's called the, it's the photo- Photography Museum. Yeah. Something like that. That's the yeah. first, I've IMAX, never been first there. UK IMAX in it. Oh, wow. wow. Apparently. Yeah. I've never been there, but I should. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. When I was a kid, they have like, uh, one of like a, like a live kind of blue screen so with like a magic carpet. You can go and stand on this magic carpet and it would like put like random different backgrounds in, which is a, like a kid in the 90s was wow. the most yeah. amazing. That must have been mind blowing. I mean, the thing is, it's kind of strange now. It's like, what other type of screens are there? Because there's blue screen and a green screen. Is there any other type of screens? That well, initially it was blue. I mean, Ben, this is more a question for you, I guess. Well, they, I mean, yeah, it started with blue um, and then they do green. Basically, it's, they're the same. They're, they're designed to be a, a specific, so green screen is a specific shade of green that doesn't exist in nature, yeah. I think. Uh, and so that's generally why they use that but they'll use blue instead if there's a scene with a lot of green in it is it got something to do with that rgb color situation as well like they're taking one primary color out yeah well manipulate. because the shade is so, so the aim with it is to light the screen as evenly as possible so that yeah. when you're in post you can select that specific color and just effectively tell the computer to like delete this so it doesn't remove any of the rest of your image so when you was like eight or nine years old in front of the blue screen, do you remember what kind of video was playing in the background or they superimposed? Uh, it'd you been on? like clouds or something like that, or like just uh, flying in the clouds, the pyramids. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. I mean, it, it by today's times it wasn't it wasn't very good. It was on like yeah. a little um, CRT TV or something like that. They they had one in Momi, which doesn't exist anymore, Museum of the Moving Image, and you could be Superman flying over London. Take so probably a similar thing. Yeah, I think every every kind of blue screen is kind of nicked from um, Superman now, isn't it? Or they can um, manipulate what they used to do in those, that film. Um, the other thing I've noticed about your name, Ben, is did you know that there's an actor with um, Hardman <laughs> Animations? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he actually, he on IMDb, he was getting credited for my work at one point. Really? Yeah, so there's on IMDb, there's like, a, just because someone, like the way IMDb works is when you're making something, they'll just like, um, someone in the production office will just like submit your name and there's yeah. like an auto filling system because I didn't yeah. have much in the way of credits they just 
Loaded click the up first Ben White and it happened to be this Ardman guy. So you, so in order to change it... So he's got your editing credits. Well, no, he doesn't because I, you go through like an appeals process to try and get it like changed. You kind of send... If you, you had to become a, Well, if you become a member, you, you send it to like... Um, you sort of make a list of amendments and then some guy yeah. either approves or denies your changes. So there's a little section at the bottom where it's like, why do you want to change this and it's like because because i am ben whitehead and yeah. i did this but <laughs> as ben whitehead the actor is he just like clocking up your editing credits and thinking ah i'll just keep on to that and see, no, what, no, see what not, happens not anymore because um like as soon as you've kind of you know yeah as soon as you've got a few things it's like okay that's it's probably the ben whitehead who edited curfew rather yeah, than yeah. the ben whitehead who was a voice actor yeah, and yeah, the yeah. Rabbit. I mean, that sounds like a dangerous game to play because it's like you can be hunted down by your own doppelganger, so to speak, for your to get the right IMDb credits. You know, at this point, we should remind viewers that um, Trevor Jones did the music for Last of the Mohicans. Exactly. I have to sort him out as well. Yeah. He's getting in my way of my career path. It's almost like a Gemini Man situation, isn't it? It's like, um, it's like there's a guy on the other side of IMDb stealing all your IMDb credits. Um, and no one knows that you actually did the music for Labyrinth. Exactly, man. It's like the, <laughs> the, the hours I slaved getting those notes and the composition right together. What was it like working with David Bowie? Uh, you know, he's, he's, um, he, he, he wears contact lenses. He hasn't really got a blue and brown eye. Wow. He's just showing off. Wow. Live and learn. So... Talking about um, films, or talking about films more seriously, um, what was the film that first sparked your imagination to kind of get into the film industry? Oh God, that's a that's a question. Uh, to be honest, I didn't really have a film. Like I was never that into films growing up. Oh, really? really? Yeah, not not really. I liked I liked TV sitcoms. Okay. Uh, so the reason I ended up doing it at all was because I sort of dropped out of uh, my first go at university and ended up wanting to try and explore a screenwriting course. Oh, wow. Uh, and I liked, I mean, I'd love like Blackadder and Unfalls and Horses and all these kind of like old school sitcoms. And so I wanted to kind of go that route and I found this course and it happened to have filmmaking tacked on the end and I was like, oh, that sounds good. Was this course still in Leeds or did you have no, to No, it was in Worcester. Worcester. Was in Worcester. Oh, okay. So when you were do, doing this course, was this kind of like, um, at the time, was it like you're doing this out of interest or was, or was you thinking, I've got a lateral way to get into the film industry? No, I literally did it because I didn't know what else to do. Like I, I, I just knew that I, I wanted to go to university uh, and that I, want, I should do something that I would just find fun. Because like yeah. the first course I did was like an engineering degree. Wow. Uh, and I was just like not cut out for it at all wow, <laughs> so, it's complete left field um so yeah so i like after three months of basically doing nothing um like the, the if you've, you've been to university yeah, yeah. Like the, the the hours fluctuate massively depending on what sort of degree you're doing so oh. like an engineering degree is like it's full time like yeah. you're essentially there like every day learning six hours a day yeah you go to do like a screenwriting degree and it's like half that it's like yeah. three <laughs> at best uh, and that was a that was a bit more what I was thinking I was after at yeah. university. Okay, cool. So, did you actually uh, write a lot of scripts during your time on this call? So, were you learning a lot of theory, or you've been asked to watch a lot of films? Yeah, I mean, there's quite it's quite a standard like 
I say standard. It was the first year they'd run the the course, so they were kind of making it up as they went along. And there's part of the filmmaking side of it. There's like a standard kind of history of cinema you go through. Like you watch, um, oh, what's it called? The um, the racist film, um, Birth the, of a Nation. The Birth of a Nation is the yeah. classic kind of standard. Here's where um, tracking shots were invented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, has, anyone seen, has anyone seen Birth of a Nation? <laughs> it wasn't yeah. where racism was invented that actually existed in 19th century America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not like Birth of a Nation is properly yeah. hardcore, hardcore racist. It's yeah, not yeah. even like you think, oh, well, you know, it was the time it was made, it's like it might be, but it's just yeah. full on, yeah. like, it's really, really bad. I think it's, I think the weird thing about Birth of a Nation is is that a lot of people used to chastise, um, I think, is it Fritz Lang w. in D. Germany? In, is, oh, right, okay, no, sorry. they used to, a, a lot of people from, let's say, the West were chastising Fritz Lang for his propaganda movies in Germany. And then, like, this film comes out, like, I think 15 years after Fritz Lang's making his films and then all of a sudden it's like okay that's the film that we don't talk about and kind of try and sweep <laughs> under the carpet even though i think it's um i think it's actually recognized by the library of congress or something like that isn't it, well, it is well it's a, a seminal film in many ways yeah 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 dw griffith invented a lot of techniques yeah yeah but yeah. it's just a shame he made he dramatized a film in which the ku klux klan are heroes yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> Well, anything can happen in the film industry, I suppose. It's a matter of suspending your disbelief yeah. every now and again. But um, yeah, so that was, did you feel that a strange assignment to do in, as part of that screenwriting course then? Uh, I mean, not, not really, because it was just kind of one of the, that's, it was, that was part of like the film studies module. So it was very much yeah. like a, you know, broken up into like different little pieces. I mean, it was, it was, it was an old film yeah. that they told me was important. So I was like, yeah, cool. That seems important. Because the thing that I'm interested about that is, um, obviously, Birth of a Nation, very contentious film, and like Dom says, and a lot of other people said before him, a lot of techniques were invented in that film. So is that like your first taste of being able to dissect um, films based on technique and what you can do with editing and what you can do with film style and influence people's emotions, perhaps? I don't, I don't really know to be honest. I mean, it was definitely at university where you sort of, I started to get that kind of understanding of how like making a film is kind of broken down. Like, there's that kind of when you sort of know a bit about film, but don't really know how it works. There's always that classic question of like, okay, well, when you find out what a cinematographer is, and then it's suddenly like, oh, hang on, there's a whole separate person who does the filming. I thought that's what the director did. I thought the yeah. director did the filming. Yeah, yeah. And then you sort of realize how the director's job is kind of different to what you is generally kind of presented as, you know, yeah. where it's like the director makes the film and there are other little helpers. It's a bit, yeah. it's a bit different in the way it's constructed. And that's actually there because it's just, it's easier to yeah. pin everything on the director because you know, otherwise you've got to try and go into the entire minutiae of like who created what. It's just, yeah. as a story, it's much easier to tell. I suppose it's like the the mystery of Christmas of thinking like, oh, Santa Claus is doing everything. And then realize, oh no, there's all of these little Yeah, helpers. Santa Claus and his elves and, and it's actually you Amazon. Realize, <laughs> you realize, yeah, actually it's just mum and dad like sneaking in three hours before you go to sleep to put the presents under there. So Ben, you were talking about how you got into the minutiae of who did what on the film set. And that changed your outlook on films, or did it? Um, did you start watching films in a different way, a more technical way? I think that's different for everyone, isn't it? Like, I don't know. I, I definitely watch films now, and kind of see see the 
see the puppet strings a lot more than I guess you that I guess you guys would do, right? Uh, just because, yeah, because I I know that part of the process and I know how it's broken down. Um, but then if something's actually good, you still kind of get sucked into it anyway and still sort of forget, you know, what it is you're watching. Uh, VFX is the thing that I see a lot more clear. Like if you ever see like a driving shot, although I think maybe maybe a lot of people see this as well, like cars driving along and you go, I have green screen. And there's that little bit of you where you go, that's not very well done. And then if the film's good, you'll kind of snap back in and be like, okay, cool, I'm just enjoying this again. Because yeah. like, there's loads of films, like, especially old films that have like bad, like, you know, car driving, stuff like that. I mean, yeah. Uh, what did I watch the other day? I watched Planes, Planes, Trains and Automobiles the other day um, with my right, girlfriend. Yeah. And there's like a driving scene. It's like, that's, that's green screen. That's, um, that's whatever the technical term is. It's called back projection. And then you kind of go flicking you back in watching the film. So that's one thing you're liable to be yanked out by back projection, yeah. bad green screen. Yeah. And sometimes there's another stuff as well. Like I remember I watched um, uh, um, um, I, Tonya. I Tonya. Yeah. And there's like, there was one, I need to go back and watch it actually. I saw there was one cut in it. And I was like, that was a good cut. Oh, I want to really? check out why, why did I think that cut was good? The Ooh. bit where she gets like thrown against the wall um, and smashes into like a picture frame and there's a, a cut in it. I think it cuts down the line and it's like that was really good that's the wow. Tonya Harding skating biopic yeah, 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 yeah. good film yeah it's a good yeah. film although it has the worst example of um, like the young versions of them played by the actual actors that I think I've ever seen like yeah. they're just supposed to be playing with like a 14 or 15 year old something like that and it's yeah. just yeah. Margot Robbie it's, as like a that is not full adult it's like yeah. I mean the guy who's got like a 5 o'clock shadow in the <laughs> shot it's like his kid is like but it's also like you can't really hold that against them because what's the alternative? You know, you do kind of like yeah. bad, cast someone bad. apart from Margot yeah. Robbie, and obviously they want more Margot Robbie. <laughs> yeah. Have you, ever, have, you, sorry, have you ever seen the film uh, Bohemian Rhapsody? No, I know that's got the famous <laughs> editing. Um, yeah. Because it won the Oscar for best editing, right? And then there was a yeah. thing that went round with how terrible the editing was in this that yeah. one scene. Yeah, because. Um, we talk about the scene where everybody, Freddie Mercury comes to the table that's on the riverside. Yeah. And, and then, there's like um, six or seven people around the table and it's kind of this awkward cutting to go from one person to another. Because it's, it's like there's seven, I think there's six actors at the table yeah, well, sitting in six different spaces. Yeah. It's, 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 it's Queen sat at the table and then the manager walks in, doesn't he? Yeah, and like yeah, walks yeah. up the side and then sits down. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the scene. It's not well cut. Why, why <laughs> do you think it's not well cut? Because I've got a theory about that. Uh, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's impossible to actually say. Like, I think yeah. the guy who cut it kind of came out and said, look, that is not the version of the scene that is representative of how I would cut a scene. Yeah. And I think that's... You know, that's could that's it's very based on my experience. That's very easy. Yeah. You know, it's very possible that that could be true. I mean, because if someone go turns up to a scene and you go like you get like you some when you cut and stuff, you get a lot of slightly like generic notes sometimes. Where it's like I'll oh, just just it, this scene needs more cuts. Yeah, yeah. Will be yeah. a kind of note that you might get, or like this scene yeah. needs more close-ups, and it's like because to forgive that editor, I think one of the problems with that scene is like Rami Malek is like quite a famous actor who's doing like several different projects. And I think the guy who was playing his manager or Queen's manager 
he was in Game of Thrones up until like season five, I think it was, or season yeah, seven. Well, I, I know so him I'm as get- the mayor from The Wire. Yeah, yeah. So I'm getting the feeling that he was probably playing around with some footage where all of the actors went physically on set at the same time. Uh, yeah, I think he said something about that scene. He had like lots of like reshoots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. I mean, I mean, that looks like it. I mean, that looks like a horrible situation to be in if you've been an editor and you've had to kind of do piece together shots where perhaps the actors aren't really talking to each other because there's conflict in schedules. I mean, have you ever had that experience? Where two actors aren't in the same... I've, I've had the experience where, um, where yeah, you kind of... You're in one location and then you jump to another location and they're not in the same place. But it's not been yeah. like a problem in the way that you've yeah, described. Yeah. It's actually kind of amazing when it actually works. Like There's yeah. a scene in uh, the thing I'm working on at the moment where um, the, it's set in the French Alps. Mm. And so there's like a... Um, a scene where this the two characters kind of climb through a window, they have a conversation, then they climb through the window, have another conversation, and then um, one of the characters runs off. Uh, and the way it works is they shoot one half of it in like Romania, which was shot like six months ago through the window, oh, and wow. then they shoot the other half in like the London location. Was it like a walk scene? No, it's, scene it's where they're inside scene? the window, but it, okay. the, because the big. It works because um, it's just amazing when you see it work. Yeah, cool. So um, talking about that or on that theme, have you ever had an experience where you've been cutting a film and there's some footage that you think would make it a lot better, but that footage doesn't exist? Yeah, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all the time. Um, But like that's, you know, that's not the the job mm. at least it's not the job for me i can imagine if there's like if you're working on something you know massive budget thing and you kind of go um oh okay here's the opportunity you know we've got the opportunity to go back and do reshoots then you can say to someone like we need that shot and like it's only really relevant if it's an absolute disaster if the shot doesn't exist but it happens a lot where you know you kind of like oh I've, i could do with a this angle on this person mm. but when you're working in telly at least the telly that i've worked on it's like if they've shot it it needs to be really important if they're going to go back and get that shot unless they're already in the location and then you're like look can you just grab me this shot if you're still there yeah Um, i mean is this going to be stuff like an assassin picking up a gun before he points it at somebody or is that yeah i mean the, the important stuff is stuff stuff like that like if it's important to tell the the basic storytelling like the scene is yeah I don't even know, like um, man, you know, have a conversation, man picks up the gun and points it and you can't tell the story without one of those shots. That's yeah. like, you need to go get that shot, otherwise the scene doesn't work. But if it's something like, I'd really like a close-up of the assassin picking up the gun, Yeah. but I don't have it, but I can still see that he's holding the gun in the wide shot or sure. in the close-up. Mm. And it's like, I'd like it, but I don't need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and sometimes it's good because actually like, it's nice not to sometimes just cut away to do the obvious thing. So like just you know, cut to the gun being picked up. It's like, that's the sure. most boring version of what the scene's about. It's not really about whether he picks up the gun unless mm. it's in the subtext of the dialogue or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. Have you ever seen a film called Mickey Blue Eyes? 
No. Um, okay, so Hugh Grant comedy. Um, With James Caan. Yeah. yeah, and I met the director of that, David Freeman, and there's a scene near the beginning where Hugh Grant is trying to propose to his girlfriend and he asks for the ring to be put in a fortune cookie, but then in the restaurant they balls it up, so he gets a normal fortune cookie and the ring goes to someone else in the restaurant. <laughs> which is <laughs> a funny really- is, is a funny scenario. But... Um, the editor was saying when Hugh Grant or Hugh Grant's girlfriend opens the fortune cookie and it's obviously a normal fortune, he wanted like shots of the restaurant so there would be like some suspense about where's it gone. Right. And those shots didn't exist. So he right. wasn't able to do that. Right. But that would have made the scene even funnier than it was. But would it have done though? That's the interesting thing. Like, like here's an example that which is a pulling up the classiest example but i remember watching a clip of like the guy who directed like the only fools and horses moment where it's like the batman and robin thing running down the alleyway and like they shot it in such a rush that he basically just got a wide shot and then a tight shot and that was it and he said kind of like actually it's probably kind of funnier that way because if i'd have had time to shoot it i would have shot like you know hands close-ups of feet and Mm. close-ups of hands and actually by by shooting less the scene becomes kind of purer and less complicated. Mm. Oh, well, there's something to say for that as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen it, so... Yeah, no, but I but think I you're think right. That, you know, like, it's like more is not always better sometimes. Actually, yeah. as an editor, like less I often find is preferable. <laughs> when, you, when you look at it and you go, oh, God, 12 takes and like 70 slates, it's like... Jesus. Yeah, and then you've got to pick the best one. Yeah, well, yeah, that's like, even is the best one. They all look pretty much the same to me. <laughs> I just picked the last one, is it? Yeah, well, you know, that's where they stopped, so they must have been happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, makes sense. So let's move it back to you more specifically. You've had a progression from being an assistant editor to an editor. Yeah. What does that involve? Um, it's, it's complicated trying to become an editor from an assistant editor because the there's not a natural like progression between the jobs. Like they're essentially completely different skill sets. Um, like I think b- back in, back in the day, like um, sort of said like 20 years ago, you would have um, like the assistant editor would be sat in the room with the editor and would be assisting the editing process, you know, like being given scenes to like either look at recutting or, stuff like that whereas here um because of the where tv is evolved and the technology is involved while you still do those jobs the assistant editor is never really sat in the room with the editor mm. anymore for a kickoff and they're generally doing more general work like as well as like sinking the rushes and stuff like that it's like managing the kind of um you kind of become the in-between between the editor and like the rest of post-production. Mm. So you're sort of almost your own kind of slightly separate department. Uh, so to, to try and make that transition is difficult because you essentially need to do your day-to-day job and then also spend as much time time to do this, a second job to sort of learn how to do it and then to prove to other people you can do it so that someone will say, okay, here's a two million pounds worth mm. of content you 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 have a go on this mm. now like mm-hmm. you know and often like the, the way it worked for me was that essentially schedules fall apart and they essentially become 
so desperate for someone to do that job that they will trust the person who essentially has no qualification mm. to do it at all, which is essentially what it boils down to them needing. I mean, it sounds like somebody who's um, like an in this kind of understudy role that you're just constantly waiting for the day that you get called up almost to get caught up to England international or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but except it, it's, it's not really a proper understudy position because it's, it's only an understudy position if you make it that way. Okay. Like, you, you could quite easily just do the job of an assistant editor for 10, 15 years and not even not come progress. anywhere close to doing any actual editing work. Wow. Uh, just because, you know, there's so much else that you could be doing with your time in terms of the technical managing of the projects and... Um, I don't know, sending quick times to executives and doing requests. Can you look through the edit and find these shots of this person? Because we've got this photo shoot we're doing. This person's cutting this trailer. Can you make sure that they get the footage and that the grader can grade it and it'll all click back together? Okay. Like there's loads and loads of like, to be honest, really boring stuff that kind of goes on. And that's what the assistant editor's job has kind of become. Mm. Depending on the job and the TV show and the film and stuff like that. So I notice you've come in wearing a very snazzy jacket. It says, <laughs> it's like the least cool thing I could have done. No, it's great. <laughs> and just for our viewers at home, our listeners at home, it says curfew. Yeah, it's the it's a it's the curfew. So, so when you when you might make something, generally um, you'll get a crew gift like partway through the show, and depending on depending on the show, will depend on how good or bad the crew gift is. And this is actually a really nice. Um, jacket that they made for the people on curfew. Um, it's Tog 24, which I've been told is a good brand. <laughs> yeah, it looks warm. It's, it is. Like I'll be honest, the reason I mean I wouldn't normally wear it so much, as much as I do because it's like it's got. It looks decent, man. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really good. And actually, the logo is what's what is quite small, which is really nice. What yeah. happens is they'll kind of give you this really nice item and then they'll put this horrible like tent logo. Yeah. My friend of mine has like a rucksack um, that he got for working on Stripe Back Series 3. And on the back of his backpack is <laughs> the, is like the Stripe Back logo with three at the end of it. But it's not like the number three or III. It's yeah. three ones mm. for the number three. And I was like, man, that is the naffest thing I've ever seen. Um, so yeah, they did quite good. You know what? That reminds me of um, I saw this scene in BoJack Horseman where it was kind of like um, I think Mr. Uh, Peanut Butter was saying, "Okay, um, happy birthday to blah blah blah," and then can you also make sure that I get a look at the sign before you actually print it this time? And that was actually on the, <laughs> the actual poster. Nice. It feels like that kind of thing where they they got the ones mixed up. That was like the running gag in the show, isn't it? Yeah, they yeah, always yeah. get his sign wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's good. So um, one thing I wanted to say is um, you are an editor, but who do you learn from to become a better editor? I mean, other, other editors, I guess, is this sort of obvious answer. Um, and other stuff as well. Like the, the way I always approached it was like, um, if you're going to be doing the job that, other editors because i mean as an assistant you're always around other editors anyway so if you want to be doing their job then you need to be able to be given the same stuff that they're given and cut a scene that is 
to the same standard as theirs. Like, I mean, it might be different or, you know, better or worse or whatever, but it needs to tell, be able to tell the story as well as their scenes do and look as nice as theirs does. And I think to an extent that's just kind of an instant thing. Like, you know, everyone watches films and TV and so you know what a film looks like and what a TV a scene should look like. And the more you do it, the more you'll instinctively kind of know where you can't cut from that shot to that shot because that will be horrible. And so really, like, it's just trying to do as much of it as you can, or at least that's what I did, was to do, do as much of it as I could and scrutinize what I did as much as possible. Um, like, so I had a scene um, when I started on Curfew where like, I did a version of it and then I saw the editor's version. That was the thing I did a lot was like, mm. I would purposely not watch the editor's assembly of it and would do my own and then compare it. And okay. I saw one, I was like, oh my God, she used that shot. It's amazing. Why didn't I use that shot? And it's like that yeah. question of like, why did I not use it? Is it because I didn't see it? If it's because I yeah. didn't see it, then I'm doing my job wrong because I should see everything. Yeah. Otherwise I'm missing things that, you know, would be useful like yeah. this example. Or if it's just some, I had it before the other way around where you have a scene that you, you're going through and like, this is, this is really hard to like make what I would consider good. Yeah. And then you get there and you look at the, yeah, well, I think that's that's about as good as I can make it. And then you watch the other, the editor's first pass, and it's like, oh, okay, it's not a million miles away from what they, I didn't look at their version and go, yeah. that's like amazing compared to what I've done. And there's yeah. a certain element of bias there because you know you like your own work because that's more. the way you yeah. like to do it. Um, but I think that's kind of how you learn. Just asking editors questions as well, like you know, why are you doing that? Why do you do it this way? Like there's. There's kind of two sides of it. It's like the basic sort of boring part, which is like the organization of, you know, the editing software and how you sort of take like kind of four hours of just raw material and mm. organize it in a way that will get it into your brain and out as a scene. Yeah. And there's a, you know, like depending on how you organize the project depends on how easily it is to get it into your brain and get it out because you need to go back and like find the right shot. And mm. if you don't know how to like organize your rushes um yeah. which is like you know what you call the what are rushes so rushes is the term for just the what was shot by the camera the camera presses record and stops pressing record and that mm. gets effectively put into your computer so that we can edit with it and that's what you call rushes yeah. i'm sure there's like it has a name related to like film or something like that yeah. like we, we organize it in bins and that's because of yeah you know bins that you would have for like a physical bin for like actual film which is yeah the old school way of doing it yeah i think it's to do with like 35 mil they would yeah, like yeah. rush print it so yeah, yeah. there you go so, yeah. <laughs> so what's the strangest answer or the most memorable answer you've had from an editor about why they've chosen a certain shot or chosen a certain transition and the reasons really are kind of exactly what you would expect it's just the basics like this tells the story better the best the best quote that i had from an from an editor, it's, it's, it's not quite what you're asking, but it's kind of on the same ballpark, which was he said to me, don't cut the rushes, cut the story. Okay. Um, and so I did a version of this scene for curfew, actually, and then um, assembled it for him, and then he took my scene and just, and I sort of cut it, and it was, it was I don't know if you've seen curfew, but it's the bit at the end where, like, there's um end of episode four where one of the characters is like on a surfboard on wheels. So what is curfew about? 
uh, uh, sorry, an underground street race to escape a totalitarian government um, brought on by a pseudo zombie apocalypse. Wow, that sounds fantastic. I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds exciting. I think that's my pitch for curfew. I mean, it's it's quite a convoluted like backdrop, but essentially, it's these people um, need to get from um, London to Scotland in order to escape the zombies. Oh, it takes place in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, it's wow. for, so they rest from. So you've seen it then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I knew Sean Bean was in it. That's Sean Bean is yeah. in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the that's the the idea. And Sean some... Bean and zombies. I fear for his chances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he hasn't got a good survival rate in anything he does. Um, so yeah, so there's like some like um, sort of. Oh, I'm trying to think of the the term. Like some some. Um, oh, what's the charactery thing in your brain? Um, no, I was going to say philanthropic, but that's not the right term. Like charismatic, charismatic, yeah, yeah, yeah. charismatic billionaire who um, sets up this race to like help people escape the zombie pockets because like right. because of the zombies, people there's a curfew, so yeah. everyone has to be in bed by a certain time, and there's a wall around the city, and there's the police and stuff like that. And this is to add to the danger and attention. Yeah, and he's there to be like, look, if you compete in my super dangerous street race then the winner gets to come to my lovely desert island i mean you know it's very it's very yeah, it's very tropey it's very kind of mad max yeah um death race 2000 yeah. all that yeah yeah exactly yeah death race 2000 yeah. is probably a better example actually yeah yeah i haven't seen it i'll admit but it sounds amazing so i'm intrigued cool <laughs> so you we were talking about editing um what I wanted to ask is, where do you stand on the Final Cut Pro versus Avid Media Composer versus Adobe Premiere debate as like <laughs> a best software to use? Uh, it, it depends on depends on how you depends on how you're asking the question. Like the the fundamental question of which software is better is, to be honest. I find I used I used to be like a final I I learned how to cut Final Cut Ten, which mm. is actually not a very popular one to be yeah. working on. But the honest answer is, it don't really matter. Yeah. Um, because you can edit ninety percent of the actual process of editing ninety percent of the films that you see. You could do in Windows Movie Maker. You could do in iMovie. Mm. Like, there's nothing special about them because you know, like, who's going to use what you want to use a star wipe. Yeah. or any of the fancy stuff like you essentially you know they people used to cut on film they used to cut on a steam back right which is literally just the most basic version of your editing software you could imagine yeah um so it creatively like they're you know as an editor the the basic answer is it doesn't really matter as long you know the important thing that you need to be thinking about is like how to tell the story better like which shots mm. you're going to use. And it's more about the material rather than the software. The software is a means to an end. Sure. Um, there's kind of a technical side to it, which is obviously like, depending on what you're doing, you need to be able to get things out of the software into other programs more easily or do things beyond editing more easily. Um, so like, for example, Premiere Pro plugs into After Effects very easily. So if you're doing a lot of After Effects work, then that's, the better to use um generally what's used in the tv industry is um avid media composer and yeah. that's used because it's, it's 
far as I can tell, I'm not 100% on this, but is the only one that's really capable of working like a multi-user environment okay. like properly. And also, it's just what everyone uses. So everyone then learns it yeah. and then it's uses it to... and then you need to use it. In, you know, And it becomes this kind of like self-fulfilling sort of prophecy, I guess. So Adobe Premiere and After Effects, that's more like visual effects, yeah? Well, Premiere, Premiere Pro is um, is just Adobe's version of editing yeah. software. They also yeah. make After Effects, which is also very popular for like motion graphics. It's a motion yeah. graphics program, and it's very easy to like um, get get work from one into the other because they have like yeah. a connection service. Uh, I mean, I I quite like Final Cut Pro Ten. I used to like it because it had a um, I quite like the magnetic timeline, which was cool. Yeah. But like, really, it's all just like tools to achieve the end result which is you know close-up of you know done for two seconds cut to wide shot cut to this dissolve to that and that you can do in anything you've worked on a couple of marquee series uh like hard sun for the bbc and curfew for sky one so what did you learn from the experience of being on the showcase or tentpole series for the channel because were, these were like the big projects of like they, they'd spent like months promoting it and saying this is going to be the big thing that everybody's going to be watching on TV yeah they did some people watched more of them than others yeah <laughs> um, I mean again it's the what did I learn on like each one specifically like mm. I mean is it like is there like a certain pressure that comes on uh, that you got to work with and you have to kind of work faster or do you have to kind of say, well, um, I know that this is um, not the be all and end all of um, what I can work on, even though it's being promoted as the, the next big thing? Well, I think when when you work on anything, there's always a certain level of... Um cynicism is probably slightly too strong but you all you're always like a little bit jaded because you all you ever see are problems with this thing because that's essentially your job is to like fix problems yeah so it's you can very quickly lose the sight of the big picture and the how an audience comes to this and goes oh i enjoy this and you sort of start to like kind of guess yeah. How, at least that's me i'm very bad at like being yeah. able to like take myself away from the work but at the same time i also then think everything i work on is is amazing because i become very invested in it okay. so i sort of get into a situation sometimes where i think i'm not sure if this is going to be any good but i love it to bits yeah and that happens is that because you lot. spent more time with the material than anyone else and like you've seen all of the rough edges of what it has been and what it has become um, in terms of like why you worry it won't be good, yeah. I think I think you you can just because you you know you worry sometimes about whether the, the storytelling is right or whether you would want to watch it. You know, like as an audience member, it's like you know, like like you know, I'm sure you do. I do like reviews of you know things on this show. It's like what would I actually think if I came out of the cinema or the on TV and thought of this? And sometimes you can, you know, what I might not. I might not think this is good, but then you also might work on stuff that's not for you, right? Like, um, if you work on a kids' TV show, it's for kids, so you know you might not enjoy it. And then you, so you then have to like figure out, okay, well, you want to appreciate it on its own terms and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, every every job has its own, um, you know, like challenges. I mean, the 
the crown was a tough tough nut to crack in terms of um, work but it was the first series of a very high budget show and everyone cared a lot about it um but then you know like it's fun to work hard yeah you know so um yeah i don't think there's ever that kind of thing where you like want to check check out really i mean it's it's different for everybody right like i don't know i i really cared about my work and knew exactly what i wanted to get out of every job which was to like move so i could cut so i mean after editing a series can you stand to watch the series again or do you have to kind of avoid it to kind of give yourself some break from it? Uh, i don't think i've ever watched anything that actually gets broadcast okay. afterwards uh i've seen i've seen stuff in um like screenings and stuff like that like they usually have like a cast and crew screening for the first episode um but again i think i'm just i probably should watch it on tv and get like an actual feel for what an actual audience thinks mm. of it but I, I never have never have done really for some reason mm. um so going forwards um do you have some projects lined up right now uh well yeah i've got the thing that i'm working on at the moment so i'm working on alex Ryder at the moment which is an adaptation of the kids books he's mm. the kids version he's of the james ki- bond he's the kid james bond yeah. exciting oh, okay, cool. uh yeah so they had like a promotion storm chaser or something like that stormbreaker, stormbreaker was um the first Film. book um charlie hickson is the writer i think yeah Anthony he used Horowitz. to be in the fast show there you go well, and in Hor- Anthony Horowitz wrote the books. Who oh, didn't really? used to be in the Far Show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know who wrote the the, the, the film adaptation. I think Hickson might have written the film um, adaptation. But yeah. He's in there somewhere. He yeah. must be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so I'm working on that. Um, and then I've got another thing that I'm signed on to do after that. I'm not sure. I probably can talk about it. Um, okay. But I'm probably Is it not going to. all non-disclosure agreements and stuff like that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't think I've signed anything for it yet. Um, so I guess I probably shouldn't talk about it. Okay. Because okay. I should have signed an NDA, but probably haven't. Which is even worse because then someone's right, in trouble for not getting an you, Let's steer you away from that. Um, yeah, let's steer him away from the minefield. Yes, Will. You're trying to get some dirty, some goss on the next. We are, we are. Out. We're terrible like that. Cool. Yeah. It's for Netflix, I can tell you that, I think. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, that's the segue. So. Um, Netflix is Netflix and similar online streaming sites harming cinema. Harming cinema, uh, as in the cinema going experience. Is it stopping people from going to the cinema? Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm probably I'm going to sound like a miserable old fart at the moment and say I wish it did sometimes. Really? really? Yeah, because I there's so many people I see in the cinema. I'm like, yeah, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, you're gonna like, have to expand. Yeah, it's just it's just people like so. So I went. To, I tried to. I tried to go see. Um, get and uh, what was it called? Not Get Out. The sequel. Us. Um, Us. Yeah. yeah. The um, Leicester Square Odeon that had just right, been like yeah. renovated. Yeah. I thought, oh, I go see this. This will be great. Um, and got in and sat through the film. I think I got like ten minutes in before I turned to my girlfriend. I was like, I have to leave. I can't sit here any longer because of the other people. Because we had we had girl just next to my um, girlfriend who was just Snapchatting on her phone. This was like through like the pre kind of like tightly bit of the film. There was someone behind just having a chat, and it's like it's like when there's one person, okay, whatever. You maybe turn around and tell someone to be quiet. But there was girl Snapchatting, 
flashing screen. There was person talking behind um, her. Wow. And then there was a guy in the front of the cinema who was just photographing the screen and his flash was going off. Wow. That happened twice. And I was like, I, I, can't, I can't do this. Not just within like, the first 10 minutes. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a thing that happens with like horror films, especially if you go to like central London like cinemas. Like people go there for like, like I think it's like, it's like a kind of a ride, you know, like, oh mm. yeah, us is going to be really scary. So I'm going to go and be scared. Yeah. The same thing happened with like Hereditary, which is quite a... A reasonably highbrow like horror mm. film, yeah. But because you need to get people to watch it, it gets marketed as like, you know, it's going to be the scariest thing ever. It's going to be yeah. like, yeah. I don't know, paranormal activity or something like that. And you yeah. get, has anyone, has anyone seen Hereditary? No. no, you haven't seen Hereditary. Oh, it's no. brilliant! It's really good. Okay, um, I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but it, check it out. it's it's a really good, it's really good, and it's a real like, accomplished piece of filmmaking, I think. Um, but because it's a horror film, you needs to like you know it needs to like build up its own tension. And when you're in a room with like a hundred people who are kind of just there for like you know a bit of fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. then it kind of they can kill that tension very easily because yeah. that's what mm. they're there for. Sure. Uh, so yeah, but that's that's very cynical, and that's not really answering your question either, which was is Netflix harming cinema? Uh, I can't imagine it is. Um, I mean. In terms of the film industry, it's, I mean, there's more films getting made because of Netflix. Really? I mean, the thing is, a lot of people are talking about El Camino uh, coming out as the sequel to Breaking Bad. Well, it's El like Camino. A film. We can, but, I can talk about El Camino. But that's an extension of something that was already a TV series. So I don't El see that killing cinema so much. But Netflix have got like big budget stuff coming out on, that's going straight online. Plus, I think they're getting stuff nominated for Oscars now as well, isn't it? There was um, Roma. Roma got nominated without with barely being on the cinema screen. Yeah, well, I think there's like a like a minimum standard for like how much time it gets in the cinema. Mm. Um, but I mean, also like how how could it be harming cinema? Like if it's you know Netflix have stumped up some money to make it. Um, it's not like they're stealing the film from another company i guess unless it's yeah. like they're stealing films from other companies that would have made them and it would have been in the cinema longer i, I don't see i think the issue might be the fact that they're probably stealing talented actors and directors from prospective feature films that could be being made i think the issue yeah, is more maybe. they're taking audiences you know uh, who go what, out yeah. to the cinema and they're just staying in oh uh, perhaps yeah i get i yeah i mean that might, might be true that People mm. aren't going to the cinema as much. I mean, cinema's been on the decline for forever, right? Like, yeah. I don't yeah. know if that's necessarily just because of Netflix. I mean, yeah, you know. Well, there are drawbacks to the cinema going experience, you know, some of which you pointed out. Yeah, I mean, I love going to the cinema. Like, that's why it annoys me so much when it's always so, yeah. so, so broken. Like, I just love to go to the cinema and have, like, the, the screen be clear yeah. and not have dirt on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um yeah people not tall but i'm like a horrible the purist like i go to cinema because i want to just kind of unplug and just yeah watch the film uh and if i think i think that i tell you what the thing that not actually bothers me when it's that stuff at the cinema is like if i can get a better experience mm. sitting at home in my living room watching a film yeah then that bothers me like when the projector quality isn't as good as my tv and it's yeah. not like i'm not like, oh, i've got like a standard 1080p tv or whatever yeah um and it's quieter at home and like it's you know it's like why am i bothering to spend all this money then you know yeah yeah understandable um so yeah but like yeah no, i mean netflix are you know 
pumping in a lot of money into like making film and TV. So I can't, I don't see that as a bad thing. I mean, I guess it's, if you're talking about the specifics of the cinema experience, but I mean, there's a difference between like film, you know, film was like a, a, an art form, which is the two hour, hour and 30 minute piece of storytelling. More of that is getting made because of Netflix and that's because of their platform to make it. So like if cinemas just died out um, because they were on decline, then you would only have TV shows. So the fact that Netflix are going, well, actually there's a market for people watching films at home, then maybe that is a good thing if cinema screens are dying out anyway. I haven't put any thought into this. So I could be I could be talking a little about bollocks, but... <laughs> um, that's cool. Yeah, that sounds... I mean, Netflix are making a lot of stuff at the yeah. moment. Like, it's actually ridiculous is it more exciting knowing that your next project is going to be out on netflix as opposed to the old school of bbc and sky one is that definitely sky because the the, the the really cool thing about something being on netflix is that people can actually see it yeah um like because oh, sky is a harder sky is a harder thing for you know like i mean i know obviously a lot of people have sky but i mean does mm. that does i don't have sky does anyone have sky yeah, yeah. nope no that's probably why you haven't seen curfew it's, right? it's yeah, yeah. literally why i haven't seen exactly curfew. Mm. uh so something being on netflix is great because there's a far greater there's, there's a lot more people who have it yeah uh, and that means that more people will see be able to see your stuff and that's just that's cooler. I mean, you know, it's the same thing with like Terrestrial as well. Like something's on the BBC, it's great because yeah. pe more people can have the opportunity to see it. Even if like they weren't planning to be like, oh yeah, I worked on mm. this thing. It's really good. You should watch it. Yeah. It's on Channel 4. You, you actually can just go, yeah, I'll watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas if it's on Sky, it's like, oh, I haven't got a Sky subscription and I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't want Sky. So as an editor, what's your favorite series to watch at the moment? Like what's the most satisfying for you? Uh... I'm not, we're not actually watching anything at the moment uh, really? well, because we're renovating our flat. Okay. It's a miserable experience in yeah. our living room. Uh, the, I tell you the, I mean, essentially anything that's good, mm. really. Like, yeah. you know, I don't really, I don't watch stuff like for the editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just try and watch good TV because like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't like tr try and cut things because they're good to edit. I just like, yeah. working on good shows so like if you know if you get a scene and it's shot in like a one and you have to cut the boards off that's brilliant that makes yeah. my job super easy cool you know um it's not like oh i get to cut more yeah so that's better and i like to work on stuff like that it's actually almost the opposite in a lot of ways so just like watching stuff that's good yeah what would you call a wanna a wanna so a wonder yeah, no one ever <laughs> hardly ever says that on it a wonder is just like a, a um a scene i mean it's not really it, it, I, I guess a wonder would be a, a scene that is done in one developing text the, the classic example is the rope by alfred hitchcock yeah. or something like birdman which is supposed to appear as a wonder where essentially there are no visible edits in it yeah it's just the camera moves from one place to another and a wonder would be something that is um done in one long extended shot so, um, children of men has a very famous wonder in it where he's cool. like running through the battlefield yeah touch of evil has a famous wonder at the front of it i think the revenant might have a few as revenant well. probably does yeah. yeah there's a great every frame of painting video about how spielberg is actually really good at doing wonders he's just does really short wonders yeah um, which is really good mm. So you can't tell us about um, your next project because obviously it's shrouded in mystery and uh, non nearly non-disclosure agreements. 
Um, could you tell us perhaps like what advice you would give to an aspiring uh, filmmaker who's interested in getting into editing? Like what kind of tips would you give them from going perhaps from editing at home or head editing privately to editing for like a large organization like the BBC or Sky or Netflix? When you get into, so yeah, that was the way I did it. I got into, became a runner uh, and then got to meet all of the people and find out about um, what everybody did. And then a big part of it is just kind of trying to do stuff outside of work, try and learn how to, that was it. My philosophy was always to try and learn how to do the job before you get the job. Yeah. Because then it makes it easier for people to hire you. Like if some, if you're a runner of somewhere and you kind of go, oh, we need an assistant editor, then they're not going to pick the guy who doesn't know anything about how to use the software or yeah. what an assistant editor is. Yeah. Um, they're going to pick the guy who like, you know, knows how to do a conform and knows what Avid, you know, and all these kind of different things. Yeah. So if you can always be one step ahead of that, that's a really useful thing to do in terms of breaking in. And that will then help you when you want to become an editor or something and like that. And how do you stay one step ahead? Do you go online tutorials like lynda.com or do yeah. you team up yeah, with I mean, people that's how... or find freelance gigs or find even short films to work on? What do you do? Yeah, short films. I mean, again, it depends what you what you want to, what your end goal is. Like in terms of like just becoming an assistant, short films aren't mm. that relevant. Yeah. Um, it's usually just about trying to find your first like proper TV or film gig, um, you know, which you can get like a lot. One of the rules of thumb that you should go by is like half the job of like being, you know, getting hired as an assistant or something like that is just if the person like likes you. Yeah. Because you might be the only person that they get to like work with or spend any time with. And if they think you're a bit of a dick, yeah, then they're not going to want to spend six months teaching you or working with you whereas because, if they like you and find that you're keen and inquisitive and stuff like that and be like well i'll be i'll give this guy a shot because technically speaking editors spend the longest amount of time with the film on, and you have to kind of well the director get, probably does right well <laughs> okay the director as well but what i'm trying to say is okay outside of a director the editors do spend a long a period of a time like with the film and working yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because well, post, post-production is a lot longer than yeah or can be i'll try to think that yeah there's a there's a lot of time allocated to the editing of something yeah. relative to how many people are involved in it versus sure. the shoot where there's like hundreds of people on a shoot and it Short might be the time. same length as an edit and it's just yeah. me and the director mm. and the, the thing is i've noticed that I've, I've met a few people who've edited on uh feature films and they seem to definitely get their work by building up a good reputation with um an individual so that they can work from with them time and again i mean a good example might be um ah the names escape me now nicholas winden reffen and um he's got a regular editor sorry i'm gonna have to say this bit again because i've forgotten now no that's cool um um yeah i mean you, you see you see that a lot well like the a good example is example is um Oh, what's his name? The the guy who directed Space, Edgar Wright. Yeah. He took his editor, his TV editor with him when he then started doing the, you know, the Shaun of the Dead films and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and you actually, I think a lot of the time in um, films, you get two editors. Yeah. Um, and so you'll sometimes see, like, I think Gareth Edwards took his t- his editor from, like, his smaller budget films when he went and did Rogue One. And then there was the Disney guy who was also 
yeah cut in as well i'm not quite sure how that works i've never really done yeah big budget film stuff before um, yeah i mean the example i was trying to make again was like you saying um uh editors have to kind of get on with people to kind of work with them over time so i'm just remembering nicholas Winden reference editors like there's been the same one on valhalla rising drive and neon demon and like they've been working together for what seems like the best part of a decade now yeah and then you've got um i think even sally menke um unfortunately before she passed away or f- before she passed away unfortunately uh she'd done a lot of uh quentin tarantino's uh, yeah, work yeah as well yeah someone told me that i didn't actually know that um but then obviously that yeah there's 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 loads of it i mean was it scorsese's editor she's yeah. she the shoemaker. shoemaker there yeah you know, so okay um, but i mean i think it's just you know it becomes it becomes like a it's a relationship, isn't it? It's like yeah. you just figure out like how each other kind of tick and work and you sort of start to find your mm. your flow. It's the same as doing absolutely anything. You know, if you were like a, a builder and you had like an apprentice or a guy who you really like does this in that kind of way, it's like, I'll get that guy in because I really like the way he does it and it's yeah. easy to work with him and I can have a nice chat and a bit of banter and it's good fun. His work's really good, you know, and it's that same kind of thing and you just... You know, you you work at each other's relationship, and you kind of make each other better. At you know, like a director who's worked with an editor, then has taught that person like what they want to get out of their work, so they'll trust them more. Yeah, because they know exactly. You know, like oh, that person's going to cut it in the way that I would mm. want my film to be, as opposed to just finding some other person. And it's a bit more of a wild card to be like, am I going to actually get on with this person when I'm stuck in the room with them? Yeah, are they even going to? do the work in the way that i think i actually want it to be yeah um and if not then it's going to be get pretty ugly and sure you know intense yeah yeah and just you know like hard to like one get rid of a person you're like, you're like i just don't think this is working and then yeah. so you got to find someone else sure, sure. whereas the guy you've worked with for like two films ago is like nah, this guy i, I, I know what he's going to do and i like know like an old pair of slippers yeah exactly yeah. you know um I want to end this on a positive note. So I want to ask you a really off the wall question that I've never asked anyone else yet so far. Um, if you were given the opportunity to have like a hundred million dollars on a budget for a film, yeah, what type of film genre would you like that film to be? And in an ideal world, which collaborators would you like to work with? And what role would you give yourself? <laughs> wow okay uh so is this just i get given 100 million yeah so this is dreamscape planned uh brand new year brand new you for some reason you've got like a 100 million dollar budget like just sat in front of you and like you have to make a film slate. with it you can't just run away with it yeah right okay so no buying an island yeah off the no Virgin that's Islands or that's like fine that. uh an island off the virgin islands there might be an undiscovered one I guess it's, I guess it's, I mean, if I had just get given a hundred million dollars and I would just write a film and probably direct it. Okay. But, but I don't know whether I would want to do that. So I guess to simplify it slightly, let's just go there. There is a hundred million dollar film being made that I can cut on. Yeah. Then what would that film genre be? If you I have could have any director. Yeah. yeah. Or if there was like infinite number of. Yeah. Um, hundred million dollar films being made yeah. of you know whatever. Uh, what genre would I like it to be? Probably not sci-fi because <laughs> I've done a lot of sci-fi stuff. It seems. All oh, right. Um, I tell you what. I mean, I mean, it's, I'm just going to boil it down to like which films would I wish I'd have made. Okay. Um, 
I'd love to do. I'd love to do some something of Michel Gondry's. I love his oh, films. Okay. Well, no. To be fair, I'd love Eternal Sunshine. So actually, maybe I'd love to do Edit a Charlie Kaufman. Actually, thinking about that, it's really it starts with a script, right? So it's like, yeah. whose scripts would you want to cut? I think that's the the starting point. Like you you want to read a script yeah. and go like, yeah, I want to I want to edit that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Um, and I've always been a massive Charlie Kaufman fan, so I'd love to cut a Charlie Kaufman film. That would okay. be really cool. That's a good choice. Um, so yeah, well, I'll I'll go Charlie Kaufman, and then um, the director I'm working with, Alex Ryder, I think is brilliant. And um, Chris Smith is amazing. I mean, like, I, I don't think I've worked with a bad director, so I'd happily work with all yeah. of them again. Yeah. Um, dream director to work with. Um, I mean, I'd. I quite like to work with Tarantino just to see what the what Tarantino is like in the cutting room. To be honest, like jump on his tent film, it can still happen. Man. Yeah, just, just elbow <laughs> out whoever's in there, or I'll put on like a disguise, and just, I just you know just to see like what his process is. Like yeah, you know, I, yeah. I have absolutely no idea like yeah. how you know like you know Hitchcock has a famous story of me like he's basically got the whole thing mapped out from the the front, and he's probably yeah, not that yeah, present. Yeah. Um, I mean, all edit, older is a different in the edit, right? So, yeah. I think Tarantino is like heavily invested in his films and stuff like yeah. that. So, but there's yeah. a difference between being yeah. heavily invested in the film and then like how you operate the edit. Like a lot of directors yeah. will like um, kind of sit back and let the editor edit and yeah. then they will just watch what they've done and go, okay, here's my notes. Some directors will sit next to the editor and basically edit with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and those are two very different, different you know, different processes. With. I get the feeling that he's somebody who's just heavily invested in the story and he he lets the editor have some free will over what he's doing. Yeah. I mean I I have no, no idea. idea. <laughs> I, have no, I mean you must be incredibly specific about a lot of I don't know, I reckon he's probably quite specific, isn't he? Because yeah. like he's you know, like the way he writes his scripts, there's a lot in there that's like, that has to has be meaning. in the film. So yeah. I think he would be quite prescriptive in how the the edit has to be. Okay. But also probably quite excited when you do something different. And yeah. So I, I guess it's probably a bit of both. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Ben. Really appreciated your no time worries. and really appreciate you opening up about the world of editing in uh, film and TV. Is there any project or any website or any future thing that you want to give a shout out to now that you might be working on? Uh, or that we should pay attention to in future? I worked on Alex I worked on I'm working on Alex Ryder at the moment. Uh, I don't know what channel it's gonna be on. Okay. Um, so look forward for Alex Ryder yeah. series but watch curfew right now. Yeah, well you can watch World on Fire is on telly. I did episode two of that, so you can watch okay. that if you want. Cool, cool. All right, we'll take a look at that. Thank you very much there once is. again. And that was the editor, Ben Whitehead. <laughs> uh, so that was the end of an inspiration interview where we met the editor. And you've been listening to Geek Sweat. Uh, thanks to my co-host, King Dom. Goodbye. I've been your host, TJ. And you have been listening to Geek Sweat, which is available on 21 different podcast platforms, including Acast, Stitcher, Podknife, Radio Public, and TuneIn Radio. Uh, you can also follow us on social media by following at GWEKSWEAT on either Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And you can find us on every podcast search engine via the G
G-E-E-K-S-W-E-A-T, type in into the search engine. Thank you for listening. We're over and out.